The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We've a Christmas theme to start as we find out how many of us are ditching both meat and alcohol this year, along with Christmas trees and unsustainable gifts. But we've also some advice from a renowned scientist, Mark Miodovnik, on making the perfect gravy. On a more serious note, TV personality Jake Quickenden will be here to offer advice based on his own personal experiences about how to remember lost loved ones. And we find out about a new app for reporting hate crime against the LGBTQ plus community. Then, in our look back at the best bits from Meridian FM this week, Carrie Overton will be chatting to chiropractor Dr Johnny Phoenix and Samantha Day will be talking to Fiona Straczynski about a debt advice service from CAP all in the latest edition of the Sunday Review. Now, apparently record numbers of us are planning to ditch the meat, real Christmas trees and make more environmentally conscious gift choices this year. That's according to research by Treedom, a tree planting gift site. To tell us more, I'm joined by Anna Weston from Treedom. Anna, welcome to the show. Let's start with Christmas dinner. The research suggests that around 20% of us will be ditching the meat this year for vegan or vegetarian options. What are some of the reasons we've been giving behind making the switch? I think lots of people are simply more environmentally minded these days. And I think that when big national things like Christmas happen, um, it's it's ever so easy to kind of forget what your priorities are and, and to do the, the traditional things that we're used to doing. However, what we're seeing from this research is that actually people aren't doing that as much this year. They are remembering the importance of making mindful choices um, and, and remaining to be as thoughtful as you can, even at a time like Christmas, when we're used to buying everything we want to eat and gift and drink and all the rest of it. Um, and I think one of those quite easy switches is making a vegetarian or a vegan option or even just having one on the table instead of quite as much meat. Um, we know that the carbon footprint of meat is is often um, quite damaging. So I think making those easy switches is a, is a quite a simple way people can reduce the impact they're having this Christmas. According to the results of the survey, what are some of the other ways that we're planning to reduce our environmental impact this year? It's amazing, actually. There's so many different ways that people are being really creative with it. Um, so if you think about Christmas, you know, there's the presents themselves that we're buying. Lots of people think, oh, I'd like lots of presents under the tree. And perhaps they buy things that aren't necessarily needed or perhaps are going to be played with a couple of times and then thrown away. So I think more more sustainable choices around the gifts themselves are definitely coming through. Um, people are purchasing different decorations for the house. So perhaps wrapping paper might be different. They might use string instead of plastic ribbons. Um, they might purchase wooden uh, decorations that can be used year in year out as opposed to tinsel that might be kind of roughed up and then thrown away that year so there's so many different ways we're seeing actually even people who are as you said not not purchasing a christmas tree um you know working in the world that we do we've seen some people contact us to say instead of having a christmas tree this year we're going to plant them and and make sure that we're really really contributing to the positive impact instead of having a negative impact so there's so many different ways that people are being creative how much of this is down to the cost of living crisis, do you think? And how much is down to a real desire to make more sustainable choices? It's a really good question. And I hope that the, the kind of beauty of being more sustainable is that people can address the cost of living crisis and reduce their costs, as well as it being a benefit for the planet. Um, I think, you know, whatever people's motivations, it's about making the best choices that you can at that at that time. Um, some people will be eating local food and, you know, even homegrown food because it's a really good way to save money. Um, but I think lots of other people are even if they do have a, even a little bit of spare cash are still able to make good choices and perhaps invest in planting trees and proactive things like that. So there is a big range. Um, luckily, you know, you would hope that buying perhaps fewer presents or fewer things you don't need is, is a way to keep costs down as well as a way to stop kind of over consuming. As we've mentioned, Christmas is quite an extravagant time of year for many. What are you hoping the knock-on effect of our changes of habit this Christmas might be longer term? That's absolutely the right way to look at it, actually, because what we want to prioritise is not just making the right choices around Christmas, but actually setting those new traditions that will last year in, year out, as well as at other times of the year. So, you know, we all know that after the joy of Christmas comes the dreaded January resolutions. And I think part of our research shows how many people are actually featuring 
environmental choices such as recycling or perhaps planting trees or um, you know growing your own food as part of their new year's resolutions and that's exactly the behavior I think we all need you know across the world to get us out of this situation is consistent improvements in behavior not just you know peaks in in better stuff around Christmas for example but that year-round commitment to improvement. And are there any tips you could leave us with for New Year's resolutions that could help us be more environmentally conscious in 2023? I think conscious is the key word there. So really thinking about your choices, doing some research. I think lots of us act on autopilot. And if you actually just have a look at, um, you know, the environmental impact of some of your more um, ingrained habits, that would be a really, really nice way to just check that you're doing the right thing. Um, it's about having, you know, a healthy body, healthy mind, healthy environment and, and just doing your best where you can. So local food, buying the, only the things you need, buying sustainable where possible um, and doing your best is absolutely the best approach. Fantastic. And where can people go to find out more information on this topic? Absolutely. Well, we um, publish quite a lot on our blog, which is on our website, at Treedom's website. Um, and this research will be going up soon. We've just had it in. But there's also lots of apps that you can use, actually, where you can calculate, you know, carbon footprint of food, for example. So um, I, I'm not going to mention the names. I don't know them myself. But if you give a Google to those apps that have the data to help you make informed choices, I think that's the best way we can arm ourselves. That's great. Anna, thank you so much for chatting to me today. All right. Thanks, Tim. Take care. For more information on making environmentally conscious choices year-round, visit treedom.net. That's treedom.net. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. An alcohol-free Christmas is far from easy, what with parties, meals out, meeting up with family and friends, through to the day itself, the big day, Christmas Day, and of course, don't forget New Year's Eve. The festive season can be the most indulgent time of the year, which begs the question, is it possible to have a festive season without alcohol? Well, according to research by Schweppes, many of us are having an alcohol-free Christmas this year and more welcoming in the new year with a soft drink. Today, I'm joined by Pratish Modi, the founder of the World of Zing and a regular presenter on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch. Pratish is renowned as one of the UK's leading drink experts. How much of a surprise was the move to an alcohol-free Christmas in the results of the Sweps research. I've got to say, you know, it shows near enough a third of Brits will be having an alcohol-free Christmas this year. And, you know, I'm well aware of an increasing trend for people drinking less. But, yeah, it, I mean, to be honest, that number surprised me quite quite a lot. As as you said, you know, it's, it is the time of indulgence for most people. So um, even, even my mum, who doesn't drink, has the odd glass cream liqueur over Christmas. What differences did the research highlight between the drinking habits of the different age groups? Well, I think, again, it's kind of, it's, it's well sort of documented now that the, the younger generations are certainly abstaining uh, more than ever. And I think it's 23% of under 40s now consider themselves teetotal, which again is, you know, it's a significant statistic. But, you know, there's also this growing group of sober curious flexitables as the tribe is known, who are just choosing to be a bit more conscious about their alcohol consumption. Flex tipples, is that what you call them? Yeah, that, I mean, that is the name of this new tribe. Everyone loves a, a group or a new buzzword. And I think this is the buzzword of our times, certainly for this Christmas. What reasons did people give why they're considering changing their drinking habits to no or low alcohol drinks? Well, I think it's not about consciously trying to drink less, but it's more about drinking being more positive about what you want to drink and the research showed that 71 percent of people chose flavor as the most important consideration when it came to choosing a drink and then cost as the second uh, choice and alcohol content was way down at the bottom so ultimately we're in this perfect kind of position where people are curious to are wanting to drink less and now we've got brands such as Schweppes who are coming out with incredible non-alcoholic soft drinks and mixers that really have the adult flavor profile but you know without the necessity to always have alcohol in them it sounds like there's evidence that suggests people can move easily from from a no alcohol to a low alcohol or even having an alcoholic drink yeah ab absolutely so you know so on a on a weekday a, a glass of tonic on a weekday with as long as it's presented nicely i think presentation is so important when you're drinking non-alcoholic and you want to still make it look like an adult drink 
So as long as you present it well, then a nice fresh glass of tonic, fresh glass of wedge of lime or lemon in there or grapefruit, lots of ice, still feels adult, still has that refreshment factor, but the alcohol isn't necessarily important in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really with you with that, with the presentation. Well, I do drink alcohol, but not very often when I go out. And I tend to be a, a ginger ale drinker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ginger is such a grown-up flavor profile as well already, right? So some nice presentation to just just to make you feel like, you know, you're, you're having something grown up makes all of the difference. Well, there was a time when options were limited to, say, an orange juice or a cola. Mm. And now there's many al- low-alcoholic drinks in pubs and bars offering mocktails. So how popular are mocktails? And are mocktails just for children? I think the, the, the word mocktail now is a, is a bit antiquated. And uh, for me, it reminds me of, you know, in the 90s, sort of an orange juice with grenadine running through it. And, and that was sort of a, a mocktail. Whereas now there are some really good adult options, even in the, in the cocktail space where, you know, you can play around with, for example, tea, different types of tea. So an Earl Grey and tonic is an absolutely delicious grown-up flavour. There are lots of non-alcoholic spirits out there that sort of mimic the flavour profiles of gins and whiskies, etc. So that there really has never been a better time in terms of choice for someone who doesn't want to drink. But as I say, it, you just don't want to be sort of treated as a child in a, in a bar or a restaurant if you choose to have something non-alcoholic by it just being presented in a very basic manner. Well, I'm an Earl Grey tea drinker, so I'm going to have to try the Earl Grey tea and tonic. That oh, sounds delicious. like a winner. <laughs> Absolutely delicious. Tell me what else I need to put in that drink other than ice, of course. Well, so all, all you do, so you, you, you just brew your Earl Grey extremely strong. So you only want about a third of the water that you'd normally have and just brew it very, very strong. Use half of that liquid. You want some lemon juice in there and then just top it with tonic water. And it's absolutely refreshing. It's grown up. It's delicious. Wow. Okay. I'll be definitely trying that later today. Brilliant. Thank you. Did any research participants say they would do something different other than sit around with a hangover on New Year's Day or Boxing Day? Well, as I say, now it's all about people want to have more experiences. You know, they want to go to their friend's house. They want to go out. They want to have movie nights. They want to meet their friends for festive coffee or shopping trips, winter walks. So, you know, I think people are just more conscious uh, of how they spend their time and using the time to, to have an experience at every moment. And I think this is part of the motivation almost as well, is indulge a little too much on Christmas Day, for example, then, uh, you know, Boxing Day is going to be largely unproductive. And so, you know, th- th- there, are, there are many motivations, which is why this whole flexible tribe has come in. And it's just about being more conscious. So you don't need to have a drink every day. The sneaky glass of wine or G&T every night is largely unnecessary and so when you do drink kind of you're you're conscious about how much you drink what you drink and the consequences of it and whether you can afford to waste the next day almost when you're having a drink well you suggested an l grey tea and tonic for myself but can you suggest any other drinks to make us feel festive enjoy the sparkle and the magic of christmas without worrying about the alcohol yeah i mean i'm a big fan actually of coffee and ginger so coffee topped with a shot of espresso topped with ginger beer over Christmas and you can stick a cinnamon stick in there or a nice orange twist and it's again coffee is a very grown-up flavor profile but it's also got the caffeine hit in there as well so say you know six o'clock on a on Christmas day you've indulged in all the food and you need something to get you through the next few hours I think a lovely ginger beer with with coffee is absolutely delicious well thank you uh, is there any website where we could find more information yeah absolutely so head to schreps.eu and there's lots of information and lots of recipe ideas there for you to check out well thanks for joining me today Pratesh. thank you norman norman wong with that story if you'd like to check out some of the recipes mentioned by Pratesh, visit schweppes.eu forward slash recipes that's schweppes.eu forward slash recipes we'll post a link on twitter at sunday review 107 and on facebook.com forward slash sunday review 107 New research from Ocado has revealed the hardest parts of a Christmas dinner to master are delicious gravy, crispy roast potatoes and a moist turkey. But the pressure on the chef to get it all right on the day can be immense. So a renowned British material scientist was set the task to work out how we can master the perfect gravy every time. 
Mark Miodovnik, MBE, joins me now, along with Ocado's gravy guru and food expert, Laura Rowe, to offer us all some tips on getting it right on the big day. Welcome to the show, both of you. Mark, before you put us out of our misery, Laura, what were some of the things people told you in the survey? Well, we learned that 31% of Brits which is, you know, a substantial amount find it the most intimidating part of making um, the Christmas dinner and it's the one they mess up the most, which I think is such a shame because it's the the saving grace of a Christmas dinner, really. You know, if your turkey's cold, it can be poured over and heat up your turkey. It can be the flavour enhancer. It sort of brings everything together. So that was um, a real shame to hear that, but we are, we're here to save the day. We've got lots of top tips and the perfect formula for Mark, of course. Why do you think there is so much pressure over getting Christmas dinner right? I think it's just, you know, it's that one big meal of the year. We're all gearing up to it. Um, you know, it's when our family around, you might have, you know, your judgmental auntie or you might have your granny. Everybody's got different tastes. Um, you know, you've got to get it right at the right time. Everybody's uh, probably had a Bucks fizz in the morning, um, overexcited. So I can understand why there's lots of pressure. But it is um, something that you can definitely do in advance. It's something that with the right formula is really simple to do. Um, so, yeah, I think we should all be a bit kinder to ourselves this Christmas. Indeed. Now, the gravy is often made in a bit of a rush as dinner is almost ready and can end up a bit lumpy or watery as a result. Mark, from your research, what's the secret then to making a perfect gravy? The secret to a perfect gravy is four main factors which you have to really think about before before you do it. One is how much gravy do you want per person? Because if you kind of if you put if you have too much, as you say, you're gonna, it's going to be watery, right? You've got a certain amount of flavor concentration at your disposal. You really want it to optimize that for people's taste buds. You want to get that flavor out of every bit of the cooking you're doing. So you know try and get the stock as good as it can be as delicious as it can be so that's the second factor of course you then when you start to make the gravy you need to thicken it and that you need to stir for long enough to really get a velvety smooth um, texture so no lumps <laughs> and so that time of, of making sure that you've you've stirred for long enough is important and then finally and people often forget this is the temperature you know you don't want it too cold and and, and you know, because if it's too cold, it'll sort of congeal and, and it will it will depress the plate. It will make it colder. What you want is to lift the flavors. You want it to, to run and be steaming coming off the plate. And and so we've asked um, you know, cooks around the UK about all these different variables. And we've got actual optimum times and temperatures for these things. So serve your gravy at 69 degrees. Uh, that's, that's the best temperature. Um, stir it for at least two and a half minutes to get it velvety smooth. And it turns out that about 115 millilitres per person is how much you need um, on the table. So how long did it take you to come up with the right formula? Well, the, coming up with these different factors, this is about, you know, talking to chefs and, 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 and understanding that, you know, there are different, different things that are going to affect the flavour and the experience when you pour it onto your plate and eat it. But then working out... Um, what they should be a lot of that subjective right i mean so so these are recommended amounts because they come from survey data from lots of great people around the country who have made you know who've really triumphed in terms of making gravy but of course you know it does depend on the actual your actual um own subjective uh feelings but what important about the equation is that you can't avoid any of these factors, right? So if you ignore the temperature or you ignore trying to make it smooth or you, you ignore how much per person, you won't, you won't have the most flavoursome gravy. Now, Laura, as a gravy guru, I gather you've got some other ways that we can spice up our gravy this Christmas. Well, yeah, it's interesting you say spice. So I think a lot of people wouldn't think to put anything spicy in their gravy. Um, but we definitely recommend doing that at Cardo. We've got a huge range of ingredients for you to choose from. But one of the most interesting that I think people should try this Christmas, potentially, is gochujang. Uh, have you ever tried that, Tim? I've not. No, what's that? So it is a Korean fermented red chilli pepper paste. Now, it's not... Uh, 
uber spicy, but it's definitely got a nice little kick and it's got this really nice balance of sweet, savory um, and spicy layers. And that can um, really enhance a gravy. Very good for like a pork gravy if you're having pork this year, but it, it you know, again, to Mark's point, it's really down to personal taste. So if you like the sound of that, I would definitely recommend giving that a try in your gravy. But there's so many other things that you could try once you've got that base layer of the formula right and you've got your aromatics, your water, your stock. Um, there's things like Marmite you could add. So Marmite's really, really good for um, beef and vegan gravies, but I, I put it in my turkey gravy too because it adds great color. Um, it adds a really nice depth of sort of bold umami savory flavor. And actually, if you're doing a vegan centerpiece, I really recommend using it as a glaze on the pastry to get that lovely golden color that you'd normally get with a gouache too. Fantastic. And any other little tips you can give us to make Christmas dinner a little bit less stressful this year? I think preparation is key for me. So um, I'm definitely one of those people that anything that can be done in advance, I will do. Uh, so I'd definitely be organized with your freezer and make sure you've got space in there. But I would make uh, a base gravy to begin with. So any bits and bobs of your scraps, uh, vegetables, if you've had any roast dinners leading up in the weeks before, or any trimmings, I tend to freeze those scraps and put them in the freezer. And then any, again, any bones, any turkey bones, or sorry, chicken bones, or anything that you've had from roast dinners um, in the weeks leading up, I would save those and make a stock from those. And then I would take that stock on the day, add it to any of the juices from the turkey pan, and then add in my secret sauce, whether that be the Marmite, the gochujuang, jam, sherry, wine, whatever it might be. Um, and then, yeah, again, prime preparation for the rest of the, the dinner as well. So get your vegetables chopped the day before, um, have everything out, pulled out of your cupboards if there's any condiments and things. So you're not sort of scrabbling around at the back of the cupboard trying to find something. Um, just be organized and write lists. Lists are very handy. One thing, though, also don't forget, you've made all this effort to make an amazing gravy. And we all agree it's really important part of the meal. I'd say make sure that the jug in which you serve the gravy in is glorious. I mean, it's a glorious thing to have so also prep like laura says about what this gravy jug is going to look like well i look forward to making the perfect gravy this christmas mark laura thank you so much for joining us today pleasure and we'll post the link on how to make the perfect gravy along with other ways to spice it up on our twitter at sunday review 107 and on facebook.com forward slash sunday review 107 for many reasons, Christmas is an incredibly tough time for people going through grief, often a trigger point. Because of the pandemic and the sheer amount of loss, many of us feel awkward talking about it all for fear of saying the wrong thing, upsetting someone or not knowing what to do if they get upset. When, in many cases, people want to talk about their loved one, as my next guest knows only too well. TV personality Jake Quickenden has lost both his father and brother and is here to tell us why we all need to open up more about grief. We're also joined by Michelle Monaghan from Co-op Funeral Care. Jake, Michelle, welcome to the show. Now, Jake, can you tell me a little bit more about your own personal experience? Yeah, so I, um, I lost my dad and my little brother within five years of each other. Um, I was 20 when I lost my dad, and then I was 23, 24 when I lost my little brother. Um, and it all happened quite fast. And um, it was just probably the toughest couple of years of my life after that, um, trying to kind of come to terms with losing two of the closest people in my life at such a young age. Also, I just kind of got into the public eye by doing the X Factor, so I was kind of try and learn what that was all about as well um so it was quite a tough few years um and then kind of trying to deal with the grief on top of that because grief hits you in so many different ways from kind of being quite numb at the beginning to then being very very emotional and wanting to stay in bed for quite a lot of the time so yeah it was a tough it was a tough few years to lose them um but now I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying talking about them because I want to help other people with their grief and stuff like that. What sort of things happened after your loss? You know, what did people do or not do that had an effect on you? I feel like a lot of people never really know what to say. Um, it's quite a, a weird subject because I never really wanted to talk about it with my friends because I didn't want to be the morbid guy at a party who's talking about my dead dad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just simply simply putting it like that. 
Um, and I think sometimes my friends didn't want to ask me about it because they, they thought it would upset me to ask. Um, so it's quite a weird situation that you're in. Um, but I can honestly say the more I spoke about it, the more I realised that my mates never really looked at it like that. If, if I wanted to talk about it, they were always there for me. And the more my friends asked me if I was okay and I opened up, they kind of realised as well that I wasn't going to break down every single time. Like, sometimes it was, it was nice to talk about them and sometimes it made me actually happier, like, remembering a memory and stuff like that. So when I kind of realised that opening up and talking about it was the one of the most powerful things and one of the most powerful coping mechanisms, it, it's what really helped me. Um, and that's, like, now I want to I wanna let men, especially young men, know that it's actually fine to open up. It's fine to talk about your feelings. And it's actually a very powerful thing. It, it shows a lot of strength being able to do that. Um, when I kind of went through my grief, I didn't realise that there was other things out there. I didn't realise that there was maybe kind of charities that can help. That's why I was quite excited to, to partner up with Co-op Funeral Care because they offer a lot of support to people who have gone through a bereavement um, and I kind of wish that I knew that when I went through mine but I dealt with it in my own way um, and I, now I just want to share my story so hopefully there's maybe just one young lad that's really struggling to talk about it who might listen and go you know what I'm going to open up a little bit more. People often say that things like birthdays, anniversaries, times of the year like Christmas are, are particularly tough. What were some of the hardest moments for you? Yeah, I think I think the Christmas and birthdays are always going to be the worst moments because they're the days that you should be celebrating the people um, that you love. Um, but for me, every day was quite hard in its own in its own way. Some days were better, some days were worse. I'd maybe hear a song on the radio that reminded me of my dad and brother, and it made me upset. And then I'd maybe hear a song on the radio that made me really happy and made me remember fond memories. So grief can hit us in so many different ways. And it's not always sadness. I will say that sometimes it's happy memories that come flooding back. Um, but yeah, I still find Christmas quite hard now. The fact that there's going to be a couple of empty seats at the table. And the fact that my dad's never got a chance to be a granddad and my, my little brother's never got a chance to be an uncle but now what I'm trying to do is trying to give my family happy memories of, of us uh, all as a family and hopefully somewhere they'll be watching down and pretty proud yeah I'm sure they will now Michelle co-op have done some research into this whole area and people who've lost someone often say they feel isolated bereft and lonely when life goes on and the phone goes quiet what other sorts of things came out of the research yeah, I think there's there's always a period and, and, and people are kept very busy up to sort of arranging the funeral, doing the immediate things that are needed when somebody dies. And then there seems to be this period where, as you said, the, the phone can go a little bit quiet. And I think in our experience, what we see is people are almost frightened of reminding somebody that they're grieving. When the reality of it, like Jake said, is he would welcome somebody to come and talk to them. So the research that we've um, that we've been part of shows that you know only six percent of people who felt isolated actually sought out counselling, and that's quite scary. Um, that so many people are trying to tackle this alone, um, and it's one of the reasons that Co-op decided to partnership with Cruz um, and, you know, create these relationships with Jake and others who've done the podcast to make sure that people are aware that we're the way after the funeral itself. So we will continue to support people um, through the um, website, um, which is coop.co.uk forward slash bereavement help. Or even if it's just connecting in with people in the community, finding a local coffee morning, we've got the Cooperate platform, which is like an online community hub for people. Now, we saw a huge outpouring of grief recently after the Queen died. How much do you think that's helped us face up to the reality of death as a nation? Yeah, I think, I think it's helped immensely. And I think it's been particularly relatable because so many people were affected through the pandemic. 
and perhaps couldn't grieve in the way that they wanted to. And we saw that with the Queen herself at Prince Philip's funeral and, and the solidarity that she had in that moment. So when the Queen did die, you know, a lot of people looked towards that national grieving and actually found some comfort in it that we could almost mourn as a nation. Um, and I think it, it's around 37% of people who actually said that they felt that was like a final act of service for Her Majesty to give that to us as, as a country. Now, you mentioned earlier you've got a website where people can go for help and advice. What other sort of services are available for those struggling with the loss of a loved one? Yeah, we do. I mean, like I said, there is the, there's the website, but quite often people want to sit down, have a chat, have a cup of tea. Um, you know, we've got we've got funeral homes up and down the UK and particularly at this time of year, we tend to have memorial trees where people can go in and write a little message to the loved one and hang the tag onto the um, Christmas tree. And you don't have to have had a co-op funeral to be able to pop along and do that. You know, my colleagues um, in the funeral homes will would be more than happy to help you. Um, some places will be having memorial services as well. But if you prefer private reflection, you know, take some time, light a candle, maybe pop the uh, little photograph up on the Christmas dinner table, that kind of thing can really help bring comfort. Fantastic. Michelle, thank you for sharing the results of the research with us and for providing us with some advice. Jake, thanks so much for sharing your own experience with me so openly today. Thank you so much, mate. Have a lovely Christmas. You too. Take care. Thank Thanks, you. Tim. For more information on dealing with grief, visit coop.co.uk forward slash bereavement help. That's coop.co.uk forward slash bereavement help. We'll also post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Nearly 70% of people in the LGBTQ plus community say they've been subjected to a hate crime because of their sexual orientation or transgender status in the last year. That's according to the results of a new study, which also highlights that 75% of victims say they've never reported it to the police because they felt the incident was either too minor or they didn't trust the police to take it seriously and do anything about it. It coincides with the launch of a new app to make it easier to report these crimes and access support from LGBTQ plus charities. To tell me more, I'm joined by Lenny Morris, CEO of Gallup, the UK's LGBTQ plus anti-abuse charity, and Marta Lima, who led the team at Vodafone UK, which created the new app. Welcome to the show, both of you. Lenny, can you start by telling us a little bit more about the results of the research? Absolutely. So I think you've summarised it beautifully there, Tim. Um, and I think what what this research shows is absolutely what the, the picture is of um, hate crime against LGBT plus people in the UK today. So we know, um, for example, that the, the government's own hate crime figures every year only represent about 10% of what the community is actually experiencing. So the vast majority of... Um, hate crime that the LGBT plus community experiences goes unreported and is, is sort of invisible, if you like, from that data. And yet we are still seeing a disproportionate rise of hate crimes on the basis of orientation or gender identity. So those hate crimes against LGBT plus people every single year, you know, this last year it was a 41% increase on the basis of orientation and a 56% increase in transphobic hate crime in the UK. So we are we are still seeing a, a large amount of abuse and violence targeted against our community for who we are. And do you get any sense as to why there's been such an alarming rise in attacks on the community? I think that um, quite often the, the, the understanding of what we mean by a hate crime um, is is not quite the what it actually means. So a lot of people think, you know, that we're talking about mean tweets or we're talking about, you know, this is an increase in reporting, not an increase in actual violence. Um, and what we see as this research shows is that um, quite often anti-LGBT plus uh, hate crime is, is physically violent. It can have um, lifelong effects on its victims. It also has a, an effect on people feeling generally less safe, less able to leave their homes, less able to live life safely and freely. Um, 
And I think that uh, one of the reasons that we we see uh, this growing is that whilst um, I think that the community has made great strides in the last several decades in achieving better um, equality under the law, better levels of acceptance, we still have a minority of people in this country who feel very strongly against the LGBT plus community. And, um, you know, the, the narratives that exist uh, in public life online that are anti-LGBT plus that go unchecked do have real life consequences for our community, unfortunately. So the research highlights that many people aren't reporting these crimes. Do you think the police need to be doing more to encourage victims to come forward? I think that uh, there are there are many things that the police and the criminal justice system could be doing to um, increase trust uh, with our community. But what we've seen uh, in the most recent figures is is that that, that trust has decreased. Um, so I think that, that what we're trying to do with the release of this new app is give people the opportunity to come forward um, in an easy and simple way to um, let, so, let someone know what's happened to them without that necessarily going to the police. So this app has, has no links with the police. All of the reports come straight through to us. We're an LGBT plus organization where everyone who works with, um, with the people we support are LGBT plus also. Um, and it will give the opportunity to victims to receive the support that they personally want and that they need. Um, because the, the conversation so often around this starts and stops with reporting to the police and doesn't think about what happens to the victim um, in the wake of that, what the victim actually wants, whether they want to do that, whether they need emotional support, practical assistance. And this app is going to give people the opportunity to access that support nationally for the very first time. That's great. Marta, where did the idea for the app come from? So, um, well, as a member of the community myself, um, I've experienced uh, this, uh, but more shockingly, what, I, did, I didn't really report or did anything at the time uh, because it, I didn't think it mattered. But what really shocked me was when I was speaking with my friends and I realized uh, everyone from the community that I knew uh, basically had a story. So uh, there was a competition by Vodafone Foundation that was looking for ideas of apps for good. And so uh, me alongside our other colleagues, uh, we submitted this idea um, to to build an app to report hate crimes. Um, and, and yeah, we won the competition and here we are today launching it. Fantastic. How long did it take you to develop it and what sort of involvement did you have from charities and the community? Yeah, so it's been almost two years in the making now. Um, so this was, as I mentioned, it was uh, developed by Vodafone Foundation in partnership with Gallup and Stonewall. So something that was very, very important for us uh, throughout the, the development of the idea was to go back to the community and we did uh, product research to understand um, exactly how this app could be fit for purpose and, and uh, really help our community. So talk us through how the app works. Absolutely. So um, the app is really easy to use and it's also completely free. So you can download it from your usual app store. Uh, and to report an incident, you can do that for yourself or on the behalf of someone else as a victim through a very simple form. You can also choose to do this anonymously or, or not. Uh, at the end of, of the of the um, form after you've, you've given the information about uh, about the incident you can um, you'll be asked if you'd like to receive support from Gallup and if you choose that you do Gallup will then reach out um, by phone sms or email according to your choice and provide the support that you've requested and Lenny how will the data you collect from this app help you in the future so what we'll do is um, our, our first and foremost priority with this will be supporting the people who want support. Um, it may be that, that, that the data overall in an, a completely anonymized way will help us build um, that picture of what's happening in the UK alongside the data that we get already from things like our, our national LGBT, LGBT plus hate crime hotline, which we already run, and our other hate crime services. Um, what we do as an organization is um, across abuse and violence experienced by LGBT plus people. We look at those trends, what's happening, what additional protections our community needs, and we push for um, those protections coming in and that better support being granted around the country. So we will absolutely um, be working with um, creating that, that big picture to try and push for um, better protections and better support for our community in the UK. 
Fantastic. And Marta, remind us, where can we go to get more information and download the app? You can search Vodafone UK News Centre for the full story and to also download the app. Uh, you have all of the information about the app and about the news research uh, commissioned by Vodafone. Marta, Lenny, great work and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. For more information, visit vodafone.co.uk forward slash newscentre or search for Zuteria in your phone's app store. That's vodafone.co.uk forward slash newscentre or search for Zuteria, spelled Z-O-T-E-R-I-A, in your phone's app store. We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. This week on Wellbeing Weekly, Carrie Overton spoke to chiropractor Dr Johnny Phoenix about the range of conditions they can help with. So when I was 14, I was uh, on a summer holiday with my family and uh, on a beach in Devon. Uh, beautiful sunny day and equally beautiful was this girl sitting on the beach and I thought, what? I'm a, a very highly toned athlete. I shall do a long jump in front of her because... Uh, I used to run the 100 metres in less than 12 seconds, so I was very fast, but I wasn't particularly good at long jump. Anyway, so I did this long jump in front of her, and I landed in wet sand, and it broke in three places. Snap, crackle, pop. What broke? My right leg. Oh, yeah, wow. yes, yeah. It literally went into wet sand, didn't give, and it just snapped the tibia and fibula in three places. <gasps> Extremely painful. They couldn't get the ambulance down because it was a bank holiday, so they flew me by helicopter to a... Uh, 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 hospital where they cast my leg and then when I went home um, they x-rayed it and said oh it's not healing well we have to re-break it Ooh. so not what a 14 year old wants to hear so they re-broke it months later after I came out of the cast my my back was hurting and um, I my neck was hurting I was getting headaches so I went to the GP with my mum and they gave me painkillers anti-inflammatories even sleeping pills at one point and it really wasn't doing me any good so um I always wanted to do medicine. I always wanted to help people and work with people. Um, but I actually then, off the back of not having any success with the GP with the medication, I then was taken to a chiropractor who said, right, your right leg is shorter than your left leg by two centimeters. It's wow. causing a scoliosis of the spine. Um, he, he took x-rays, measured everything. And off the back of that, did literally six treatments. My back pain had gone. My neck pain are gone, my headaches are gone, I have a heel lift in my right shoe, which I still have to this day in my right shoe. Yeah. Every pair of shoes has this uh, two centimetre heel lift, and it literally revolutionised my life. So as a patient with first-hand experience of seeing um, how one method didn't work for me and trying something completely different worked incredibly well, mm -hmm. I thought, right, I want to be a chiropractor. This is mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant. It's hands-on. You can diagnose a problem, you can take x-rays, and you can treat the person all the way through. So, yeah. That's, it's really interesting how many people I have who come on the show as the practitioners who got into doing this because they received the treatment. And, yeah. and, and so the same is true for you, that you mm. sort of experienced firsthand the power of it, and that's what prompted you to study. So how, how did you become a chiropractor? So in order to become a chiropractor, you have to go and do the science A-levels. You have to do at least chemistry and biology or an access course into the degree course. Um, I was in uh, Glamorgan, just north of Cardiff, where I studied. And it's a, it's a four-year course, very intense. It's mm. 24 hours a week of lectures. It's the same number of hours as medicine when it comes to anatomy and physiology. Right. But where they focus on pharmaceutical work and uh, surgery and other aspects of medicine... We focus on the orthopedics, the neurology, and adjusting the spine to release the nerves, which is all about the sort of fundamentals of chiropractic. It's about releasing the nervous system to allow the body to heal itself. So do you only work on spines? The focus is the spine, but it's funny you say that. Literally, this morning, I've had two new patients, both with knee problems. Right. So, And I treat shoulder problems, knee problems, ankle problems, wrist problems, any any joint in the body that could be helped through adjustments or releasing some of that tension can actually benefit from chiropractic. What's the difference between a chiropractor and an osteopath? So um, it's a question I get all the time and fundamentally for me the most important thing as a patient can do is find a good rapport with their chiropractor or the osteopath or physiotherapist or someone that's going to help them with their spinal problem or joint problem because if you have a good rapport a bit like Carl Rogers with with the, the, the psychological approach to life if you have a good rapport good relationship with your practitioner you will benefit from their expertise 
fundamentally, the difference between a chiropractor and an osteopath is chiropractors can take and diagnose x-rays that osteopaths can't. Uh, and osteopaths tend to use long lever adjustments and chiropractors use more specific adjustments. And the philosophy as well, osteopaths do a lot of muscle work, a lot of uh, tissue work release. Um, and they will actually uh, uh, often get you in gowns to do that soft tissue work, whereas chiropractic tends to be through the clothes. Right. But I mean, there are a bit of chiropractors, osteopaths that will have a lot of similar approaches, similar adjustments. And as I say, from the very beginning, the most important thing is to find a, someone that you have a good rapport with, a mm. good relationship with, that you can trust, mm. and you will then benefit from their their expertise. So what sort of conditions do people come to you with? I mean, I have patients that have had um, inner ear problems. I've had patients that have had sleep problems, postural problems, rotator cuff injuries to the shoulder, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, even hay fever, um, all sorts of symptoms that may be linked to issues within the spine affecting the nervous system. So we identify the subluxations or restrictions in the spine or the pinched nerves or whatever you want to identify the approaches, get things unlocked, and then that allows the body to heal itself. And I have more recently had a lot more people come through the door who don't have any back or neck issues but want to maintain a healthy lifestyle, want to maintain a good posture. Their parents or grandparents are crippled over with osteoarthritis or wear and tear and they don't want to get to that stage. They're they're proactive rather than reactive. So, so something can be done if if you know, for example, my grandmother had terrible arthritis. So there are things that I could do now preventatively. Yes, yeah, and you mentioned about resilience. You know, the preventative measure is is all how we as chiropractors want people to live by, rather than waiting for the problem to develop or become really symptomatic and try to firefight it when it gets out of control. Be aware that we're living a sort of suboptimal lifestyle or where there's issues that are starting to creep in and actually go in and attack it from the very beginning. So things that you're doing, like, you know, the well-being, the, the, the movement, the exercises, the, the healthy eating, the, the, the right amount of water, the hydration, the sleep hygiene, getting the proper sleep, etc., is is absolutely essential. When it comes to chiropractic, it is about posture. It's about nervous system. It's about being proactive so the whole thing with resilience for us is uh, well certainly for me is maintaining the progress so when someone comes in they might say oh, I've got this back issue and I want my back adjusted we'll get that examined uh, x-rayed if appropriate and adjust it get it moving better get it out of pain then we want to rehabilitate it so it's strong so it doesn't keep coming back but fundamentally you want to maintain that progress right. so you are resilient and this is what more and more people are getting their heads around is actually we're not just treating the symptoms. We're getting the body good, strong, mm. aligned, and maintained. Mm. And so that presumably promotes better long-term health for people because their posture and their health is in a good place to start with. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if, if you're proactive and you look after yourself, you are gonna, your body's going to look after you. And this is the, probably the most common side effects of adjustments, particularly when you get your neck adjusted, is sleep. They'll sleep really well. Mm. The whole nervous system, that fight-flight system can calm down you can get into the parasympathetic nervous system and actually calm everything down and relax and actually sleep well mm. and amazingly enough it is probably 95 98 percent of patients after their first adjustment will experience some relief of symptoms but will also sleep really well wow. and they'll wake up going oh god i feel much better yeah uh, and they may not even come up with neck problems or neck issues but if there is issues with the neck in terms of movement and they're up for getting their neck adjusted, mm. then that can then have a, a, a huge impact, a huge positive uh, impact on their life, yeah. If somebody came for a consultation or needed a treatment, can you just sort of talk us through what, what happens in a chiropractic session? So you'll ring up, you'll make an appointment, and the first point of call is to make an examination appointment. But you'll come in, fill out some paperwork about your case history. You might have had road traffic accidents. You might also have knee pain, not just lower back pain. You might also have headaches, you might have tennis elbow, you might have a number of different ailments. And mm -hmm. unlike a GP, which is limited to just one ailment at a time, um, we will look at the whole body. We'll look right. at the whole spine and how the brain connects everything together through the spinal cord. So if you have a multitude of problems, we will look at everything we can in that period of time of it's between half an hour and 45 minutes. So once we know what's going on, we'll look at uh, what is your aim. So we'll then focus on getting the, the part of the spine release that's causing or connected to that but before we do any treatment i have to examine you so i'll examine your reflexes i'll look at your range of motion of your lower back and your neck 
check the areas of concern, but look at the entire spine because the way I, as a chiropractor, will work is, is looking at the spine as a focus and then looking at additional problems. Mm. The number of patients I've seen with shoulder problems, wrist problems, knee problems, and I've only adjusted the spine and their ailments elsewhere have alleviated mm. because it's from a nerve that's being trapped or referred pain is unbelievable. So I, I always focus on the spine first. So once I've examined them, gone through what the orthopedic, the neurological checks, the medical checks, or the chiropractic test that we need to do, we'll then decide, do we need to do x-rays? Now, there's, is you only x-ray someone if they need it, mm. and that's very, very important. We don't just x-ray everyone. So if you need the x-ray, it might be that you have a previous trauma. You might have a neurological symptom like pins, needles, or numbness. You might have not responded to physiotherapy care or conservative care, and you're still in a lot of pain if it's progressing, if it's night pains, if you're over 50, if you've got a number of these, these conditions or these factors, then we will definitely want to do x-rays. It rules things out, it rules things in, so we know exactly what's right. going on. So we know it's safe to then manipulate or to adjust the spine, because if you have severe osteoporosis, or if you've had an undetected fracture, I've seen a very young and elderly patients with fractures that hadn't been picked up before because they hadn't been examined or x-rayed to the degree that we can do at a clinic with an x-ray machine. And they've picked up the, the, the fracture and we've then proceeded to send them to hospital where they've got the necessary care. But if you don't find that out beforehand, right. it can be pretty dangerous. And so. I guess that's the problem that for things like back pain, this can be, I guess, so many different causes of back pain. I know quite a few people who suffer with back problems. Um, and I think they feel that there's not very much, if they go to the GP, there's not very much that can be done. Mm. So those sorts of joint and aches and pains, would you say that actually going to see a chiropractor, you can get the, the treatment that you need quite directly? It sounds like you're saying you can refer people to a hospital or to back to the doctors if it was something that you felt that needed to be treated medically. Is that right? Uh, yes. It, it, it's some, some GPs aren't overly... Um au fait with the chiropractic approach or don't always agree with alternative medicine like uh, acupuncture or, or homeopathy or osteopathy or anything outside of, of mainstream medicine. Um, but those who are open to other perspectives, opinions of, of, of medicine, then I, you know, we've had a great rapport with actually sending people to them for further investigations, for MRI scans, etc. So when I've treated people with slip discs or with other issues that, that need a more orthopedic consultant approach, then I can then write to the GP with my findings and clearly display how things have progressed or digressed. Mm. So then they can go, right, fantastic, they've done all this work. I know I can refer them to an orthopedic consultant because that's the best course of action. Right. Whereas if you go to the GP with back pain, you're going to be given, just because of the logistics of the NHS right now, painkillers, anti-inflammatories, and a self-referral for the MSK team, which can take six weeks to six months. So if you do have back pain, neck pain, headaches other issues that you can't get the uh, the treatment or if it's just being blocked by painkillers mm. not treating the underlying cause then you should definitely look into chiropractic mm. or osteopathy or, or something else that can help identify right. what's going on and how to treat it so if anybody's listening and they think gosh that's me and i'm not having much um success with the doctors at the moment how can people get in touch with you um, good question, Carrie. So if you live in and around East Grinstead, we have a clinic called Family Chiropractic uh, in East Grinstead on the one-way system. Um, and giving us a call on 01342 315 298, we can get an examination booked in. And actually, we have a special offer where we can actually get you examined and x-rayed if it's required for just £39. And this wow. applies to the clinic in Family Chiropractic in East Grinstead, if it's done before the end of this month, um, we can examine you and do x-rays again if they're required and write a report based on your findings so we can then ascertain what's going on and how to best uh, look after you. Dr Johnny Phoenix in conversation with Carrie Overton. If you'd like to find out more about how chiropractic treatments could help you, visit familychiropractic.com. That's familychiropractic.com or call 01342 315 298. That's 01342 315 298. We'll post all the details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On her Open for Business show this week, Samantha Day spoke to Fiona Straczynski from CAP about free debt advice and personal support for those in our area.
CAP stands for Christians Against Poverty, and we are um, a national company that provides support through community-based appointments to lift people out of debt and poverty. So basically, a debt counselling service uh, within the community here in East Grinstead. At this moment of time, we're talking about the kind of cost of living and all those sorts of things, and it's really hitting people very hard yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So you must be inundated with people. Yes, I have to say. Um, our centre here in East Grinstead was launched five years ago. Um, it's been a bit of an upward climb, but I have to say this year, 2022, we have worked at full capacity and we are booked up through into February already, and that's not going to let up. So, yeah, the, the cost of living crisis is well and truly impacted many, many, many households. In fact, I believe the statistics are about 42 million people have been impacted by the cost of living. What are your typical debt clients? Typical? Well, it's tricky that because it, the landscape is changing, you know, because ever since COVID, we're now, you know, we're now seeing more and more families that have got mortgages, you know, the impact of COVID we didn't see, we weren't that busy 2020, or dare I say 2021, but it's really picked up and seen the impacts of COVID, people with mortgages. Um, I know there's quite a lot of support systems in place during COVID with the furlough scheme and things. So I thought 2022 would be our year for being getting busy, and it is. I mean, we, you know, there's people, social housing that are on rent arrears, council tax arrears, um, water bill, that's often um, another one where um, we have to look at. And there are social tariffs. I don't know if people are aware of this. There are social tariffs with water and other utility bills and also broadband these days as well. Mm. Although I have to say some of our clients do not have any internet, do not own a smartphone. Um, and that makes it a little bit tricky sometimes. So especially with universal credit, which is now online. But if they haven't got that facility because they don't have any internet connection or know how to use it, then um, we have to make the phone calls mm -hmm. with them. And we usually do it with them. Again, it's how much capacity the client feels they have to be able to make that phone call because picking up that phone and... You know, just, I don't know, it's just really, really hard for some people. And a lot of pressure on the family household. It's huge pressure, especially at this time of year. And um, with Kat, with my clients that we um, support, I'd like to think we try to ease a little bit of that pressure off them during this time as we do um, food shops for them. Um, the Christmas food bank bags have already gone out to our clients. And there's, there's various ways that we can help people on a practical level as well as an emotional level. And your services, are they for free? Yes, absolutely. We do not charge. It is a free service for anyone and everyone. We are there. We will help anyone regardless of their religious beliefs. I know we're called Christians Against Poverty, but we are absolutely committed to our service being available to all individuals, regardless of age, disability, gender reassignment, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation, only thing I would say about CAP, um, we cannot help the self-employed. It's a specialised thing. We would then signpost them onto an organisation that is designed to help people who are self-employed and in debt. And you're based in East Grinstead? Yeah, we are based in East Grinstead. We are actually based, the centre is down at the Jubilee Community Centre. Um, the part, I moved the partnership down here from Trinity Methodist Church, which is where we began back in 2018 in January. Um, but we have a local partnership with Trinity Methodist Church as well. So I tend to go up there on a Thursday morning. Um, it, they, the cafe, Welcome Cafe, is open there all week. It's a warm space for people to come into. So I like to pop up to Trinity Methodist Church on Thursday morning, and I'm available 10 till 12 for anybody that would wants to pop in and have a chat about things. Do you find that people are embarrassed to seek help? Yeah, no, this is, they feel embarrassed, they feel ashamed. It's just all those uh, negative emotions, you know. We don't like to talk about our finances to anyone. I mean, even between, you know, spouses that's not talked about within, yeah, it's just one of those things that we do not like to talk about our financial situation. Probably they feel they've failed in yeah, life absolutely. or whatever. And it's, you know, but we can help. There is hope. You know, our strapline is, always hope there is hope as an organization christians against poverty are now in their 26th year so trust us we know what we're doing um, we have very good relationships with creditors um, and the finance industry 
Now, we've established then that it doesn't actually cost anything for them to come and have, they have to book an appointment, do they? Yeah, so booking an appointment, really, um, there is an 0800 number to ring. I should just say that's 0800 328 0006. Um, that's the number to ring. So we would ask anyone, it's a self-referral, you just ring that number, you get through to the new inquiries team, who will just ask you a few questions and chat with you. The one thing they will ask is for your postcode, because head office is based up in Bradford. Uh, so the postcode is so they can see geographically whereabouts you are in the country. I cover all of RH19, RH18, RH7, and I do go um, beyond those borders as well. I've been into Haywards Heath and Ardingly, even Oxted. So I won't turn anyone away if I've got the space. But you need to ring that number first to get booked into my diary. Um, head office will notify me of a new appointment, and then I follow up on that. And that's the only thing we ask you to do on your own. Um, it's a big, massive step to make that phone call. But once you've done that, you know, we are going to come alongside you all the way until you're debt free. Will my creditors cooperate with you, though? Do they, are they happy to talk with you? Yes. Yeah, so um, with CAP, this means that things like the councils, the utilities and mortgage companies work with CAP because they have seen the results of our involvement. They know we offer fair repayments based on what that person or that family can afford. So it, when CAP gets involved, so the beauty of it, so I am not the debt advisor, I am the CAP, the local debt coach that comes alongside people to gather all their paperwork and all that paperwork gets sent up to um, Bradford and the debt advisors up there, there's about 100 of them, wow. will then dedicate themselves and do a personalized budget for each and every family. Uh, once that's been completed, based on the information that we've gathered together, I then communicate that advice and present it to them um, of their options um, to get out of debt. And ultimately, it's then their decision. It may only be one option. Um, it's, it's, we have debt management plans, which um, usually up to five years um, people will pay back, or we look at insolvencies um, is, is another route out of debt. In most cases, a CAT plan is um, set up for every client. So what that means is they will need to make a monthly payment into the CAT plan to cover their debts and bills where appropriate. So Christians Against Poverty do not pay off people's debts for them. Once they have created the personalised budget and can see what the affordable payments are, CAT will then say, this is the money you need to pay into the CAT plan once a month on a date you choose, and it's set up by standing order, not direct debit. That way, the client is in control of their finances. So an amount is then made into the CAT plan. CAT will then distribute that accordingly. So obviously, not the priority debts are things like there's any rent arrears, council tax, water, utilities. It's all that. Anything that will have a severe impact on them are called priority debts. Now, what about severe debt, where some of them have really got in a lot deeper than they even think they have? Okay, so if you are in severe debt, then we can walk you through insolvency options, such as petitioning for bankruptcy and helping you to fill out the forms. So there's kind of two, two types of insolvency, what we call a debt relief order and bankruptcy, and they have different criteria to that. So it really depends on, on the amount of money that you're in debt, um, how much disposable income you may have at the end of, of the month. There's, there's various things, but insolvency, it's, it's bankruptcy or debt relief order. That so must yeah. be such a yeah, weight yeah. lifted off their it's shoulders. Just, it's the best part of the job. You know, it's really, really fulfilling when you see these families going debt-free. Um, and, yeah, you just yeah cry happy tears with them as well because there's the relief, the absolute oh. relief. You know, the burden of the weight that's been on them all this time. But I have to say, once CAP does get involved, people do say... I could, you know, I had a good night's sleep last night or that, that, yeah. that weight has kind of been lifted off a bit, you know, because you've walked into our lives and we, were gonna, we can help you. And also it helps relieve the pressure within the family yes. home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, you, people in debt, there's all sorts of things. You get family breakdowns, um, you know, we're trying to keep people, families in their homes as well, you know. It it's mm. just goes on and on, really. So some people may have their homes repossessed and do you give them any advice or yes so we have a priority call action team up at bradford and they step in at times uh we can i have been to court um with a family before um for housing arrears and things so yes we will accompany the family to court if they need to go 
but that's on an emotional level. So, um, and we would give them all the relevant paperwork that's needed for the case. So we would give the we would have ready the financial statement and the budget for the judge to to view it. So yeah, that's another thing. Again, it's the practical and emotional side of things that is. Um, what we do here locally when you've got them down to being debt free what happens then is it just like goodbye and you've got to pedal your own canoe or what so is it this bit's quite hard for me because i've kind of maintained a good sort of friendship with my clients along the way and you've journeyed with them but i have to kind of let them go um, because i have to keep mo- as a manager i have to keep moving on to the next family the next family you know but you know, we, we do some some of them some of them I do keep in contact with, and others I, I haven't heard from since, and that's fine. At the end of the day, I'm there to to get them out of debt, help them along, encourage them, build up their confidence again to be able to be, you know, fully functional in a community. You know, so you know we say helping one person might not change the world, but it could change the world for that one person. Exactly. Yeah. Fiona Straczynski from CAP talking there to Samantha Day. In addition to the services mentioned, CAP also run money courses and can help with other things like energy and mobile prepayment vouchers, food shops, clothing for school and interviews and prepayment prescription certificates. As a reminder, if you need any help or advice surrounding money or debt, you can call free on 0800 328 0006. That's 0800 328 0006 or you can visit their website at capuk.org that's capuk.org we'll post details on twitter at sundayreview107 and on facebook.com forward slash sundayreview107 and that's it for this week we'll be taking a break for the next couple of weeks but we'll be back with the next edition on sunday the 8th of january until then take care and have a great christmas and new year